All right, if you are turning in your Bibles, turn to Psalm 139. Psalm 139, a well-loved, probably one of the most cherished psalms in the book um, that we get to study together. And a lot of truth in here, and we'll see what we can pull out tonight. Um, Let's just pray and ask God to, to guide us in this psalm before we dig in together. Lord, we thank you again for bringing us here, and I pray that as we look into your word, you'd open our eyes, that we would connect who you are um, to, to our lives, that our theology, our knowledge of you would not be just in a vacuum or something academic, but we would see how personal and real it is, and that we would be changed and molded and transformed by it. We thank you for your word. Pray you guide us in it as we look at it tonight. In your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, well, let's dig in to Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, Behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the, day that were, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. For sake of time and the length of the psalm, I'm going to jump straight into the study, um, and we'll have opportunity for feedback as we, as we commence through it. But I want to highlight the structure here in a second. But really, when, when you go through the psalm, I hope you notice, this psalm is theology personalized. That if you're going to go to a psalm that highlights certain doctrines about God, like his omnipresence or his omniscience, or that he's a creator, this psalm is rich with doctrine, but it's not just rich with doctrine. It's not just, it's just, okay, here's all these facts about God, but it's personalized. We see how these truths about God actually change how we live, how we act. 
And I want us to notice that as we go through this. And if you're to structure this psalm, you'll notice that there's basically four sections. There's four stanzas. Each one has a summary verse at the beginning. It's fleshed out for about two or three verses. And then there's a conclusion at the end. Let me show you what that looks like. So the first section is verses one through six. The summary is verse one. And then the conclusion is verses five through six. All right, so summary, fleshing out, conclusion. We see it again in verses 7 through 12. Here be the next one. 7 is the introduction. 11 through 12 is the conclusion. Third one is 13 through 18. 13 is the introduction. 17 and 18 are the conclusion. And then finally, 19 all right, 19 through the end of the psalm, same structure. And we'll dig into this as we go. But there's basically six stanzas, six sections, and each one highlights a different truth about God. Let's look at the first six. If you were to boil down what the first six verses are talking about, what would it be? Omniscience. omniscience. Very good. And if you don't know what omniscience means, it means all-knowing. God knows everything. And if we're going to personalize it, God knows me. Verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me, you know, and again, we want to highlight those similar words, those repeated ideas, search, known, know, discern, search, acquainted, all right? So it's very clear what the main idea is, that this is God's intimate, complete knowledge of you. God has searched me. This is the idea of inquiring or seeking out or spying out. This is like a diligent search. Now, this is poetic. It's not saying that God has to do this, that he has to search us out and spy us out. It's communicating that God knows me thoroughly and comprehensively. This is clarified in that second verse, that second word, you have known me. God knows you completely. So there's the summary of the first section. Now he explains it and expands it. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. For those of you who are with us the past uh, couple weeks, I highlighted a grammatical or uh, idea with a fancy word to it. Anyone remember what it was? No? A merism. Remember merism? All right, what's a merism? That's when two opposite ideas are put next to each other to communicate a comprehensive idea. Sit down, rise up, right? Um, in and out, up and down, right? Um, I, looked, I looked high and I looked low. What is that saying? I looked everywhere. That's what a merism is. So he's saying, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. So what is he communicating? What's a comprehensive idea about what God knows with those two ideas? Everything we do, all the time, right? Every action, when I sit down, when I rise up, and everything in between. So God knows your actions completely. But more than that, it goes inward, doesn't it? You discern my what? My thoughts. 
Now, the Hebrew word for thoughts here, and this is going to become really important later, is really the idea of motives or intentions. In other words, not only does God know my outward actions, but God knows my inward intentions. He knows my thoughts from afar. What does afar mean, from afar? Does it mean he's like way far away and he sees me? He sees my thoughts from way far away or way back in the distance or way up in heaven. What do you think? Yes, yeah, that's, what, that's the idea. Before we even think them. So it's not necessarily the idea of a distance, it's actually the idea of time. That long before it happens, God knows my motives. How does that make you feel? <laughs> okay. You know, we kind of rely heavily on the fact that people can't see our motives all the time. That's a really handy little trick that we like to use. That we can do things and we can have outward actions, but we know that our motives are really hidden. And we don't like it when people judge our motives. And we don't like it when people try to identify our motives. God knows every motive that you ever have. He knows every thought that you've ever thought. And he knows them before you've even thought them. That's the extent of God's knowledge. He continues, verse 3, you search out my path and my lying down. Aha, look, another merism. My path and my lying down. So you think of path, you think of walking around, lying down. You go to bed at night, right? So go to sleep at night, wake up. Your path is where you trod, where you walk uh, during the day. And it says, you search those out. And if we were to combine these two, this is just your comings and goings. Uh, everything about your daily schedule, your daily routine. He says you search this out. In fact, this is a different word than what we see up here. Uh, the Hebrew word for search. Uh, King James will say, you compassed, you com thou compassed, com compassest me about. Um, and I always heard that as thinking, well, he surrounds my path. Um, but, but really, the, the Hebrew word is actually a word that means winnow or sift. And so it's the idea of um, sifting out, discerning, comprehending, scrutinizing my path. And you are acquainted with all my ways. So God knows everything you do. He knows all of your intentions. He's acquainted with all your ways. Verse 4 he goes even more specific. He says, before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it, and you know it all together. How well does God know you? Before you can even articulate the words that you want to say, God knows what will be said. In other words, God thinks faster than we do. <laughs> and, he, and he knows exactly what you're going to say before a word is even on your tongue. Now, as we're going through this, you want to be asking yourself, how does this strike me? Okay? Is this something that I'm like, oh, man, I'm not liking this very much. This is kind of uncomfortable. I'm not sure if I want God to be this well acquainted with who I am. Look at verse 5. If, if that's how you're feeling, you're really not going to like verse 5. Okay? <laughs> you hem me in behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Now, hem in is the idea of encompass or even besiege. You surround me, God. 
Behind and before. Oh, look, another merism. There's a lot of merisms. Get used to merisms in Psalm 139, okay? Behind and before, two opposite ideas combined to, to communicate a totality, okay? You hem me in, you surround me. You lay your hand upon me. This word for hand is a really interesting word. In Hebrew, it's actually the word for palm or the hollow of your hand, okay? So combined with the first line, what is he communicating? Think of like a bug on a table and someone cup, you cupping your hand and kind of trapping the bug under the hollow of your hand, all right? That's the imagery that's being communicated here. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me, okay? How is this making you feel? And lest we try to completely figure out this depth of knowledge, verse 6 reminds us, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. God knows me so well that I can't grasp the depth of his knowledge, right? So it's one thing to say that God is omniscient. God knows everything. God, we've known that since Sunday school. God knows all. But when, when you apply that to yourself, God knows me and you realize God knows my every action. He knows my words before I even speak them. He knows my intentions. He knows my every thought. He surrounds me. He hems me in behind and before like, like, like trapping a bug on the table. Does this feel invasive? Unwelcome? Perhaps it feels comforting. Perhaps it feels reassuring. Well, the thing is, it's true regardless of how you're feeling about it right now. This is who God is. You can't avoid it. God knows you comprehensively and completely. He actually knows you more than you know yourself. And if nothing else, this should remind us that he is in charge, not me, not you. God is God and I am his creation. And he knows me so comprehensively and completely. Well, let's, let's continue on and, and, and go on to the next one to make sure we get the whole picture of this psalm. The second section, if the first section is God knows everything, God knows me, how would you describe the second one? Omnipresent, okay? Omnipresent. That means he is everywhere. If we're going to personalize it, God is with me. And again, Verse 7 is the introductory, the summary. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? Before we jump into this next one, any, any questions or comments you want to throw in there? I don't want to blaze ahead too fast. So focused on finishing the whole psalm that we don't get to discuss or ask questions. So, yes, Paul. And that first part points out what a great thing God he really is. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it should bring us to a place of praise that God is, God is great. God is all-knowing. Absolutely. I'm glad we don't worship the small God. Amen. Yeah. Even when we remember last week, the idols that, that we create uh, can't see, can't hear, can't talk. Um, we don't worship a small God. We worship the God of the universe who knows all things. God is with me. God is omnipresent. Summary statement, where can I go? In fact, this truth flows out of the last one. 
if God knows me so well and searches me, is there anywhere I can go to escape this level of knowledge? No, no you can't, right? So again, if you're seeing yourself as a bug trapped under a palm on a table and, and, and God knows you so intimately and so comprehensively, well, if that makes you uncomfortable, what's the next logical question? Well, can I flee anywhere? Can I go somewhere where maybe God's knowledge isn't so invasive, isn't so complete? Can I go anywhere to flee from your presence? And the answer is obviously no. And he fleshes that out in verses 8 through 9. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If we were to give directional pointers on a compass, what would these directions be? North and south, good. What about verse 9? What directions? East and west. west. Good, because actually, if I take the wings of the morning, where does the sun rise? The east, okay? Dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. Think of someone who's living in in Jerusalem and Israel. Which direction is the sea? It's to the west, the Mediterranean Sea, right? So what does he do? He's looking up, he's looking down, he's looking east, he's looking west, and he's saying, is there anywhere I can go to flee from your spirit? And again, more merisms, heaven, Sheol, wings of the morning, east, uttermost parts of the sea, the west. Is there anywhere I can go? And the obvious answer is no. There is nowhere that you can go. Now, should we be scared of this? Or perhaps maybe ask this question. Is this truth that I cannot escape from God's presence, is this comforting or scary for this psalmist? Yes. It could be both. Look at verse 10. What do we see there? It's a comforting thing for him, isn't it? No matter where I go, heaven the grave, the wings of the morning, uttermost parts of the sea, even there, your hand will lead me. Your right hand shall hold me. And so as he considers God's presence, that he is always with me, while there is an element, I think, of perhaps trepidation of, oh, wow, I don't know how I feel about this. He brings himself to a place where he realizes this is God's loving presence. This is God's good presence, his leading presence, his protecting presence. God is everywhere. Now, God's presence can be a scary thing. In fact, um, there's another passage in the Bible that I like to refer to as Psalm 139's evil twin. Did you know that Psalm 139 has an evil twin? It is Amos chapter 9, verses 1 through 4. I'm going to read this for you. This is in a passage talking about judgment on Jerusalem. It says in Amos chapter 9, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake, and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them I will kill with a sword. Not one of them shall flee away, not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there my hand will take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. 
If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. If they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. And they will go into captivity before their enemies, and I will commi- there, there I will command the sword, and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. Okay, now that's a scary passage, all right? That uses the same idea of heaven, the grave, this direction, that direction, but in this particular situation, it's those who are in complete and utter rejection, rebellion against God, fleeing from God's judgment, and God says, if, if my judgment is on you, you cannot flee from that, and I will snatch you from those places, and I will, I will, I will fix my eyes upon you not for, for evil, not for good. That's the evil twin, okay? Psalm 139 is actually a comforting truth. God will lead me, and he will hold me. In fact, the word for hand here is a different Hebrew word than the one that we saw up here where it talked about the hollow of the hand or the palm. This is like the forearm. This is the hand that signifies strength. And so even no matter where you find yourself, at the top or at the bottom, God's hand will lead you There's his guidance, and he will hold you. There's his protection. The word hold is the idea of hold fast, or seize, or cling. Again, using the imagery of a strong arm, God is holding on to him no matter where he goes. I think of the song, he will hold me fast. That's the idea. Though I fear my faith will fail, he will hold me fast. That's, that's the personalization of God's omniscience. It's not just a textbook thing. It's not just, oh, God's everywhere. No, it's God's with me in the, in the lowest of the low. God's with me when I'm all alone. And even there, his hand will lead me and his right hand will hold me fast. So he's meditating on this truth. And then he throws out a hypothetical in verse 11. If there isn't a location on earth where I can flee from God's presence, well, then perhaps darkness will cover me. If it's not a location, perhaps, perhaps if it's really dark, will darkness hide me? Cover here means to grip someone hard, right? So it just said, your right hand shall hold me fast. And then he comes up with this question, can darkness hold me fast? Can darkness snatch me out of God's loving grip? If there's no location where I can flee from the presence of God, can darkness snatch me out of his loving grip? Verse 12 gives the answer. Of course it can't. Why? Darkness isn't dark to you. The night is as bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. And so darkness has no power over the presence of God. Think of Romans 8. Shall, shall any of these things snatch us, you know, sh- sh- shall we, any of these things separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sore. No, and all these things are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am persuaded neither death nor life, nor things in heaven, nor things on earth, visible or invisible, shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the presence of God. 
And so we see God's omniscience. We see God's omnipresence. And we see these personalized, that these truths are a comforting reality because he is a good God. Any thoughts? Is this why we fear him? That's a great, that's a great question. Absolutely. You know, it actually points to what does it mean to fear God, right? I think it's, it, fearing God is a natural response of a human being coming face to face with who God is. And we see how powerful and how grand and how great he is. And that should cause us to fear, not in a sense of, of cowering and trembling in a frightful sense, but perhaps cowering and trembling in a sense of awe and overwhelming reverence for who God is. We should fear God. Good. Any other thoughts or questions? Let's move on to the next section, verse 13. And what does this verse begin with? For, which means this third one is giving the explanation of the reason why the first two are true. How is it that God is all-knowing and all-present in my life? And the answer in verse 13 onward is what? Because he created me. He is my creator. You formed my inward parts. If you're like me, maybe you've been confused about what in the world does this mean? Well, it's, it's actually not that complicated. The Hebrew word is kidney, okay? <laughs> or, uh, or, or really the idea of the secret part of man. Often in the Bible, it's translated as heart. When you hear in Scripture uh, the idea of, of, of loving or responding from your heart, sometimes that Hebrew word is actually kidneys, all right? You know, the, the, the Hebrews, you know, we use heart for some reason to describe this heartfelt inner sense of something. They use, they use kidneys. I guess, you know, pick an organ, I guess. They, they picked kidneys. Um, and so this is talking about our innermost sense, the secret part of man, the very core of who we are. God formed that. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. When you see this, what does this convey to you as far as God's creation of us? Mm -hmm. Yes, purposeful. He's the one who designed us. You see this intentionality, don't you? Knitting you together. In my mother's womb. It's like a, a beautiful tapestry. God knitted you together in your mother's womb. Verses 14 through 16 fleshes this out. This prompts the psalmist, David, to praise him. Why? I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Did God make a mistake when he made you? He did not. He knitted you together in your mother's womb. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. How do we know? Because all, God work, all God's works are wonderful. We see that right here. Wonderful are your works, and I am one of them. And you are one of those works. He did not give you the wrong body. He did not make a mistake 
when he chose your gender, your hair color, or your eyes. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Linda. He knitted me together in my mother's womb. Shows you have, he had a soul right there in the mother's womb. And mm -hmm. when a child is in a mother's womb, it is actually a It's a living person. That's exactly right. And in fact, if this is the, you form my inward parts, and, and this is a connection with the mother's womb, that's the very core of who we are, right? That, that is fashioned by God. Verse 15 and 16 actually connect the idea of his omniscience and his omnipresence with his creating of us. We see, verse 15, his omniscience. My frame was not hidden from you. I'm, he's so present that even when I'm being formed in my mother's womb, you're there. Verse 16 talks about his omniscience. He knows all things before my days were even written. You saw my unformed substance. You, you had written every day in your book. And this is where we're getting really personal, really intentional, and shows how good and how loving God is. God did not make a mistake when he made you. He intentionally made you. And the question for us is this. Do you know that? This is, this, this, that phrase right there is, is a conviction. It's a surety. My soul knows this very, very well. There's no doubt. And therein lies the problem for us so many times. We don't know that. Sometimes we do feel, perhaps, maybe God made a mistake. He, doesn't, he didn't. We see in verses 15 through 16 that God is present even as we are being formed in our mother's womb. My frame, really, this is, this is basically talking about your skeletal structure, your frame. Um, it was not hidden from you when you were being made in secret in the depths of the earth. You're thinking, well, I wasn't made in the depths of the earth. What in the world is this talking about? Um, that's a poetic term to describe the womb. That, that this is before ultrasound. They could not see into the womb. Imagine how mysterious that process must have been for someone before ultrasound and medical technologies. Just, you know, your belly gets bigger and bigger and, whoa, a baby, right? And so the, the, the womb is about as mysterious and known, unknown as, as the grave, as the depths of the earth. And while we are being made in secret, outside of the, the scope of human eyes, God sees us. Your eyes saw, verse 16, my unformed substance. This is a fascinating word. Unformed substance. This Hebrew word, and I'm pretty sure this is the only place in Scripture where this Hebrew word shows up. It, it, it's the idea of a formless mass a rolled up ball, or you could say a fetus or an embryo. This is the idea. When, when we were not completely formed, when, we, are, when it was, we were simply an unformed substance, God sees us. You know, if you want to know why Christians should be pro-life, these verses right here. 
When justifying abortion, you know what people often do? They will use the term fetus instead of baby to make abortion seem more palatable. Have you noticed that? It's not a baby, it's a fetus. As if that somehow makes it better. What does verse 16 say? Your eyes saw my fetus. And in your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. Is a fetus unimportant? Absolutely not. God sees us even when our days haven't been formed yet. Your eyes saw me in your book was written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me. So just as you were formed, so were the days. Before they were even started, God had written them. In every end of a life, from, from a fetus onward, is a loss of life. Because God sees and knows and is knitting together in the mother's womb a life. Now, how should all of this impact me? How does the fact that God knitted me together and God saw me when I was being formed in my mother's womb and before any day was spent in my life, God had my days written down in his book? How does that impact you? How should we respond to that? Linda. You are very, very loved and special by God. Amen. Yes. Yes. You are loved. You are special. And that's not just some type of, you know, psychological feel-good message. This is scripture. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. And you are unique. How else might it impact us? Yes. We don't have to question whether we died at the wrong time mm. or somebody didn't do something or yep. Yes. These days were written before they started. Right. <laughs> yes, it doesn't, shouldn't lead us to a fatalism. In fact, we're going to look at that. Actually, the next passage actually fleshes that out. It shouldn't lead to a fatalism. Well, God sees all the days, so we'll just kind of sit back and see what those days are. No, it actually brings comfort. It brings trust that God has a plan for us. And God did create us. Good. Any other thoughts? Yes, David. Just like the first section was God is all-knowing. second section... He's all present. This is God can accomplish. He's all powerful. He can accomplish whatever he wants. Hmm. Yeah, so the, the omnipotence idea we see here, that God has a plan, and he's going to accomplish that. Good. Yes, ma'am. Yesterday I was thinking about exactly Psalm 39, but usually I cannot quote exactly where I'm mm -hmm. for because I was watching the the. the the new, new news about one uh, <coughs> that came and said at age five, that was so sad. He knew he was, what he was a boy and then from female. Mm -hmm. And exactly what you teach him to do, that's exactly. So I'm going to see that on Facebook. Sometimes I read <laughs> Facebook and say, how oh, wonderful. Because before we were born, God had a plan for us. Mm -hmm. Before creation, mm -hmm. we were planned yeah. for who we are today. Exactly. But it's, it's so sad. The, loss, the, the world is so lost. Yeah. You know, and the devil, I think, is behind all of this. Mm -hmm. Make people confused. Yes. Know? God formed you just the way you 
Yeah. Yeah. And you are unique. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. We do live in a confused world, right? And that shouldn't cause us to come down in judgment uh, on the world, but rather compassion. We know our own hearts. We know how easily we can be deceived. And we need this truth just as much as the world needs this truth, that, that, that despite our confusion, we go back to what God has did and we see this and we realize, as com- maybe I'm confused, but I'm so thankful God is not. Right, Justin? Sometimes we as Christians make over-spiritualize and make things about his will or his leading or his calling such a big impact in our lives that we have this great mystery. And for, I read this and I take great, great hope in the fact that I don't have to search that too far and live for today. Yes. And take one step at a time and see it leading that way. Mm-hmm. I just think it's, it's just another one of those instances for me that the Bible is telling us to be present yes. to where we are. Yeah. And, and not look so much either past or future. Right. Because those days are numbered. You knew them, you already did the course outcomes. Yes. And now it's called obedience. Right. Yeah, we do, we do tend to see, okay, God has written my days. Now I need to find out what those days are going to be. No, you can't do that. Right? In fact, what does it say in the first section? The, such knowledge is too high for me. I can't attain it. Right? God's knowledge of my future, of what he has planned for me, I can't figure that out. I can't know that. And it's no use spending my energy trying to figure that out. Focus on the day that you have in front of you and what does it mean to follow Christ right now as he guides you through life. Yes, sir. You're reminding me of one of my favorite Proverbs 16:9, which says, "The mind of man plans, but God guides mm-hmm. his steps." I heard someone say that another way is, "It's good for you to pursue things out right. of the future that God lays those desires on your heart, but don't forget to eat the food that He put on your plate." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a very good way of putting it. Uh, we do we do tend to look so much down the road that we forget what has God put right in front of you. Good. Bob? This destroys our human nature to be prideful. Yes, it does. <laughs> yep. And what is pride? I mean, pride is really, subtly, our attempt to, to be like God, uh, to elevate ourselves. This really puts us in our place, but it magnifies God so beautifully. And that's when we, when we find ourselves in a place where we're, we see God for who he is, and we're humbled, We're exactly where we need to be. That's a good place to be. Verses 17 and 18 conclude this section, and I love these verses. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. What thoughts? What thoughts? Well, I told you earlier on, we see the word thought that's gonna come in handy later. And it's right here. You discern my thoughts from afar. We learned that that was our motives or intentions. So, same Hebrew word. Intentions. God, your intentions are precious to me. Intentions for what? For you. God's intentions. God's motives for for how he is approaching you. His will for you. What are they? They are precious. And how many are they? (laughs) How vast is the sum of them? If I could count them, they are more than the sand. God has that many thoughts toward you? He does. And they're precious intentions. 
God has a will for you. He has intentions for you, and they're precious. Are you, are you seeking his will? Not in the sense that we just talked about trying to predict the future. But, but the, the will that he has laid out for you, directly in front of you. Are you trusting him and his intentions? Do you see his thoughts toward you as precious? You know, sometimes we think the exact opposite. God's out to get me. His motives for me are malicious. That his motives to me aren't genuine. He's making my life horrible. That's not true. God's intentions for you are precious. The problem is we just don't follow those intentions. And then we blame God for when we find ourselves at the end of the wrong path. Is that what you call a guilty conscience? It can be. It can be. This last phrase here, I awake, I awake and I'm still with you. What's this communicating in context? What's he waking up from? I think actually in, in the context of this of the flow of things, I think it's actually kind of waking up from his meditation almost. What he's been thinking about. What he's been dwelling on. It's almost like he's been closing his eyes, meditating on these truths, searching them out in his mind and rejoicing in them. And then he opens his eyes back to the real world and he knows that those truths are still a reality. That the truths he can apply to face the trials in front of them. Have you ever felt this? Have you been here before? You're reading your Bible in the morning and you have some great comforting truth about God, reality of who he is, perhaps just closing your eyes, meditating on the truths, and then it's back to reality, right? Back to the grind, back to the business of life. But you know that the truths you just rehearsed in your mind are still true as you enter your day, whatever you're facing. God knows you, God sees you, God has a plan for you. I awake from that, and I'm still with you. I'm still in your presence. Not to change the tone, but we've got to move on to verse 19. You ever felt like this section's a little out of place? Come on, David, you ruined a good thing here. We are all really happy and feeling good about ourselves. Now you start talking about slaying the wicked and men of blood and hating them with a complete hatred and abhorring them and loathing them. What in the world is going on here? Yeah, could be. It may seem out of character, a different tone, a different message from the rest of the psalm. What exactly is going on here? In fact, this, this section is not out of place at all. In fact, this section is David applying the theology he's just been rejoicing in to the difficult situations he is facing. This section is all about his responsibility or his loyalty to God. This passage, this, these, first, these six verses articulate his clarity in regards to who's in the right and who's in the wrong. Whose side am I on in this warfare? And so he responds to all this talk about God's sovereignty and his knowledge. He responds with a confession of his loyalty and his responsibility. In other words, this goes back to what we were saying earlier. Meditating on God's sovereignty and control over all things should not lead us to fatalism. That we sit back, or we're just not responsible. In fact, meditating on God's sovereignty and control over all things should lead us to consider our response to this God. Are we loyal to him? God has all our lives planned out. We don't know what that is, but we do know how we are to respond to him. And in these passages, he actually gives clarity for how he is going to respond to God. Now, verses 19 to 22 are hard for us to swallow. Aren't we supposed to love our enemies and seek mercy? 
And that's why it's important to view this section in context of the broader message. The, the, the psalmist is expressing his clear and complete loyalty to God by articulating clearly his rejection of those who hate God. Let's start off by just describing the wicked that, that we see here to make sure we're approaching this correctly. The wicked are referred to as men of blood. Men of blood would be violent men, all right? Men who love death and suffering. Verse 20 is talking about their speech, and it's the idea of they're actually deceitful and hypocritical. They actually use the name of God hollowly to hide their own evil intentions. This is what it talks about where the enemies take his name upon their lips in vain. It's, it's not genuine. They're, they're seeking to use God's name to hide their intentions. In verse 21, how are they described? They hate God. It would be more accurate to, if you're going to reflect the Hebrew word, to insert the word utterly hate God. They rise up against God. So they don't just hate him, but they're in open rebellion. They're fighting against God. Those are the people he's talking about here. These are those who have set themselves against God as his enemies. They hate him. They seek violence. They seek deception. And they hate God with everything in them. And what is David simply communicating here? He's expressing the fact that he has no alliance with such people. He's not deceived by them. He stands on God's side as God's friend, not his enemy. And so, he hates those who hate you, God. Now, I think why we get uncomfortable is hate. We view hate in a simply sinful way, right? Where we just, we just, we have this, you know, this hateful attitude. Hate means rejection. That's what it means. In other words, those who are rejecting God, fighting against him, I am separating myself from them. God is described elsewhere in the same way. In the Psalms, it says that he hates the wicked. And what does that mean? He rejects the wicked. 1 Peter 5.5, 5, God opposes the proud, but what does he do? He gives grace to the humble. So his rejection of wickedness does not wipe out his mercy and his love. But his stance against wickedness is one of rejection, of opposition, because he is too holy to behold evil. He is still a God of love who will extend mercy and grace to those who humble themselves, but he stands against those who stand against him. He opposes the proud. And what is David saying here? I'm on your side, God. That doesn't mean that David will not extend grace or mercy to those who humble themselves. But when they hate God and rise up against him, David clearly expresses his loyalty. God, if they are your enemies, they're my enemies too. This is not just an Old Testament idea. We see this in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does the believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. So there, is a, there needs to be a contrast between his people and those who are not his people. And because God is so good and he has a plan for me, I'm standing squarely on his side. I'm standing, I, I'm loyal to him. He is my God. We see the conclusion, I hate them with a complete hatred. All right, that doesn't sound like a very Christian thing to say. We have to make sure we're, we're, we're seeing this in the right context. Not only the fact that he is a king against the enemies of the people, 
but also the fact that he is standing on God's side, saying, if God, if you are against the proud, then I'm against the proud. I'm agreeing with you in how you relate to the people around you. Any questions on that? Isn't this like hating sin? It is. Right. Right. Yes. Yes. But it also, I mean, hate the sin, love the sinner is is true. But this is actually speaking a little bit more than that, and it actually shows a level of rejection of those who are maliciously attacking and hating God. Right, Justin. So. Do you think that the psalmist is saying all the things 1 through 19 to have the proper form of truth in his mind because of these feelings that he has? And he's praying the Lord to make sure that that is not honest and worthy or righteous I think he's going to get into that in the next verses, 23 and 24. Um, I think actually what we're seeing in verses 19 to 22 is actually the outflow of what he's been meditating on. Because this is true, and this is who you are, God, I'm standing squarely on your side, opposed to wickedness. Yeah? It seems like uh, these people he's talking about are not national or territorial enemies of Israel, Mm -hmm. but they're actual Israelites that are- I think we'd definitely probably include that. Yeah, because he says, I count them my enemies. He wouldn't have to count them as Hmm. enemies if they were traditional, Israel's enemies. That's a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, there's, there's those, even within Israel, that rejected and hated God, right? And even more dangerous because they're influencing Israelites. And to your point, what are they doing? They're taking God's name, right? A, a pagan nation wouldn't do that, right? And it wouldn't be convincing if they did. So this actually points to the fact that there are people that would use God's name as a cloak of what they are, their evil intentions. Verses 23 through 24, as our closing prayer of this psalm, is what we sung. Search me, know my heart, try me, know my thoughts, see and lead. This is an invitation. Search me is the same word we find verses 1 and 2, when God is searching out and knowing every part of me. So what's going on here? If God knows every part of me and has already searched me out completely, why do we need to ask him to search me out? Help me to know. Okay, I think so. Right? It's, it, there does seem to be like some personal benefit from this. I, I want to know what you find. Right? God knows me completely. And, and, and so rather than God's complete knowledge being an unwelcome thing, what is David doing? He's welcoming it. He's saying, God, if you know every part of me, would you please search me and try me? I want you to know my heart. I want you to know my thoughts. This word thoughts, the Hebrew word is disturbing or disquieting thoughts. We've seen this in other Psalms. He's asking God to know and search out the troubling thoughts of our hearts. And I love this because it shows that although he's loyal to God, he's squarely on God's side, he also knows that he is weak at times in the faith. And I invite God to search out my thoughts and cares and anxieties and fears 
that are inconsistent with what I know to be true about God. Because I don't even know these troubling thoughts myself. I'm weak. I, don't, I can't discern them. They naturally arise. We've talked about how often these troubling thoughts will naturally arise in our own hearts. And we don't even necessarily know where they come from or why they're there or what to do with them. And they're unwelcome. We don't want them. And so we say, God, would you search me? You know my troubling, disquieting thoughts. You know the thoughts that are inconsistent with who you are. I want a greater confidence in who you are, God. So would you search me? Would you try me? He says, see, God, if you're omniscient, would you examine my life? See if there be any grievous way in me. In the song we're saying, and the King James will say, wicked way in me. Um, the, 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 the word for grievous or wicked actually means anxious, the idea of anxious toil, hardship, or pain. This is what he's saying. God, look in my life. See if I'm walking down a path that will lead to pain, to hardship. And this would most certainly be a wicked way. Right? He's not talking about just you know, keep me from tr- the normal trials of life. But the paths that I go down because of my own sinful decisions that end in pain, that end in hardship, that ang- end in anxious toil. God, can you see if there's any grievous way in me? You know all. You're always present with me. Because my sin adds unnecessary pain to my life, would you discern and see if there's any path like that in me? Because sin is a hard, hard path. It's a painful path to walk. Its end is destruction. And oftentimes, you know what? We're just not even discerning enough, enough to even know that we're going down a path like that. Everyone else around us sees it. <laughs> But we often don't. And we're walking this path, and so we say, God, would you look into my life and see if I'm on a path like that? And we can trust him to do that because he sees all, he knows all, and he has good intentions for us. And not only does he want us to see and know if we're going down a painful, grievous path, but positively, God, will you lead me in the way everlasting? Correct me, O God, Lead me on the right path. Show me if I'm on a wrong path. Lead me on a right path. And I can trust you for that because of who you are. So how does God do this for us practically as Christians? How, do, how does God search our hearts to see if there's any grievous way in us and lead us in the right path? How does he do that? <coughs> Through the scriptures. Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts, there's the cares, and intentions, there's the motives, of the heart. That's what the Word of God does. It intends, it looks into, it sees. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof. One of my previous pastors said that reproof is showing you what is wrong. Correction is how to make it right. Training is how to keep it right. You're on the wrong path. Let me correct you. In training and righteousness, let me show you how to stay on the right path. That's what scripture does. So that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So how is God going to answer this prayer in your life? As we sung at the beginning, search me, O God, know my heart. Try me, you know my thoughts. How is he going to fulfill that prayer in your life? 
by looking in his word and allowing the truth of his word to impact your heart. Follow him. Be loyal to him. Welcome his searching eye into your life so that you may be led in the path of righteousness. This is who God is. He sees you. He knows you. He made you. He loves you. So be loyal to him. Trust him and allow him to discern your heart and correct you and transform you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful song and the wonderful truths attached to it. I pray that even as we saw that, that theology, the truth about God would, would not stay impersonal, but it would become personal to us and that we would be transformed by it. That the fact that you know us deeply and fully, the fact that you see us and know us and are ever present with us, the fact that you made us, that it would make a difference in how we respond to you and how we walk through this life. Keep us in your words so that we, that we can allow it to, to discern our errors and to guide us and correct us. We thank you, Lord, for being here.